Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. It is back to winter this week, so come, come in, save the heat. Yes, there was snow this week. Yes, Tecilia and I chased snowflakes with our tongues and the black piles of ancient ice nested in the corners of parking lots and by the dumpsters have been freshened by a coat of fluff. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy we have it now because tonight... Oh, yes, welcome. Welcome to the Nook. To Tales to Terrify, I'm Lawrence Santoro, and welcome to part two of Algernon Blackwood's classic tale of camping, canoeing, and cannibalism, The Wendigo. Well, of course, I am joking. As with all Blackwood tales, the terror is never quite so on the page as that, that cannibalism thing. Well, more about the story anon, but... Before we return to the Canadian wilds, we'll have another journey tonight, a tour of the abattoir, with our guide, Mike Allen. And before that, sad word came last week that science fiction fantasy author Lucius Shepard had died. I was going to cobble together something to say of a personal nature, but instead... I want to quote some people, the author himself, on the subject of this great writer. This, in part, what I'm about to read, is from one of those bios that people who write books are frequently required to produce. Of himself, Lucius Shepard said, 
Brief biographies are like history texts, too organized to be other than orderly misrepresentations of the truth. So, when it's written that Lucius Shepard was born in August of 1947 to Lucy and William Shepard in Lynchburg, Virginia, and raised thereafter in Daytona Beach, Florida, it provides a statistical hit and gives you nothing of the difficult childhood from which he frequently attempted to escape, eventually succeeding at age 15 when he traveled to Ireland aboard a freighter and thereafter spent several years in Europe, North Africa, and Asia, working in a cigarette factory in Germany in the black market of Cairo's Khan al-Khalili Bazaar as a nightclub bouncer in Spain and in numerous other countries at numerous other occupations. On returning to the United States, Shepard entered the University of North Carolina, where, for one semester, he served as the co-editor of the Carolina Quarterly. He dropped out several times and traveled to Spain, Southeast Asia, at a time when tourism in Southeast Asia was generally discouraged, and to South and Central America. He ended his academic career as a 10th semester sophomore, with a heightened political sensibility, a fairly extensive knowledge of Latin American culture, and some pleasant memories. Toward the beginning of his stay at the university, Shepard met Joy Wolfe, a fellow student, and they were married, a union that eventually produced one son, Gullivar, now an architect in New York City. While traveling cross-country to California, their car broke down in Detroit, and they were forced to take jobs to pay for repairs. As fortune would have it, Shepard joined a band and passed the better part of the 1970s playing rock and roll in the Midwest. When an opportunity presented itself, usually in the form of a band breakup, he would revisit Central America, developing a particular affection for the people of Honduras. He intermittently took jobs working as a janitor, a laborer, a sealer of driveways, and, in a nearly soul-destroying few months, a correspondent for Blue Cross Blue Shield, a position that compelled him to call the infirm and the terminally ill to inform them they had misfiled certain forms and so were being denied their benefits. In 1980, Shepard attended the Clarion Writers' Workshop at Michigan State University and thereafter embarked upon a writing career. He sold his first story, Black Coral, in 1981 to the anthology New Dimensions, edited by Marta Randall. During a prolonged trip to Central America from 1981 to 1982, he worked as a freelance journalist focusing on the Civil War in El Salvador. Since that time, he's mainly devoted himself to the writing of fiction. His novels and stories have earned numerous awards in both the genre and the mainstream media. Catherine Baker of Clark's World posted a rather compact obituary for Mr. Shepard on the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America webpage. Of him, she said, Lucius Shepard, born 1943, died on March 18. He won the Campbell Award for New Author in 1985, a Nebula Award for his story R&R, a Hugo for Barnacle Bill the Spacer, and the World Fantasy Award twice, both times for collections. 
Shepard's second novel, Life During Wartime, incorporated the earlier story R&R and was followed by several novellas, including The Scale Hunter's Beautiful Daughter and Kalamantan. His publication slowed in the 1990s, but beginning with the novella Valentine in 2002, he began publishing with greater frequency. Shepard's early story, The Man Who Painted the Dragon Grayoul, was set in an exotic location to which Shepard returned several times. He eventually released a collection of related stories, The Dragon Grayoul. He returns to this setting in the forthcoming Beautiful Blood, which now will be a posthumous work. While many authors write science fiction and fantasy set in a gleaming future or a fairy tale past, Shepard's writing embraced squalor and third-world settings, particularly those modeled after Southeast Asia, where he served during the Vietnam War, and Central America, where he lived for many years. In addition to his fiction, Shepard also contributed a film review column to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Sefwa President Stephen Gould said of him, he was a great writer, to which I add that he will be missed. And now, for a change of pace and without further fuss, here, as promised, is Mike Allen with a solo romp through the abattoir and the work of the late Robert Aikman. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to a new installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and I'm planning to talk today about the strange and enigmatic fictions of the late Robert Aikman. I confess I got the idea after Anita and I registered for the World Fantasy Convention this coming November in Washington, D.C., Aikman's work will be one of the convention's themes. I feel compelled to share a couple of asides before we dive into the dangerous waters of Aikman's stories. One, I've acquired some bragging rights that I'd like to share on behalf of one of the authors I published in the anthology Clockwork Phoenix 4, Kenneth Snayer's short story, Selected Program Notes from the Retrospective Exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer, isn't a horror story, though it is a mouthful of a title. However, there are ghosts involved, so I feel like that's good enough reason to sneak a mention in here. And what am I bragging about? Well, this story, which was the very first one Anita and I received in the slush pile when we first opened to submissions to Clockwork Phoenix 4, and it was the first story we knew we were going to accept for the book. This story is now a Nebula Award finalist. Congratulations to Ken, and I hope you folks, when you get a chance, We'll click on over to mythicdelirium.com, that's M-Y-T-H-I-C-D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M.com, where we have Ken's story available for free, and check out for yourselves what the big deal is. Second, 
ratcheting back to the topic of the World Fantasy Convention, where Anita and I will be. For two years now, you folks have been hearing me talk about my own forthcoming collection of horror stories, formerly titled The Button Bin and Other Horrors. I'm announcing here first, the book is now titled Unseeming, and it has a terrific cover courtesy of British horror photographer Danielle Tunstall, which I'll unveil in due course. You folks have heard me talking about this book in some form or other, but like many things I get into, there's been a number of unexpected plot twists these past few years that have caused... Delays. Frustrating delays. But no more, folks. It's coming. It will be available at World Fantasy, if not sooner. And trust me that you will hear more about this anon. But enough about me. Now, Mr. Aikman. I was first introduced to Aikman's work in David Hartwell's landmark anthology, The Dark Descent, a comprehensive survey of some of the best horror stories ever written. Aikman was one of only three authors with stories included in all three of the book's sections. The other two were H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King. But Aikman was the one I had never heard of before. I found his stories odd and disquieting, like bad dreams half-remembered. Of the three... The hospice stood out as particularly disturbing, and I think that's still true, having recently reread these works and many more. The hospice is about a man who runs out of fuel on a secluded stretch of road. He's injured by a wild animal he never gets a good look at, and he ends up taking shelter in a hospice that will perhaps remind American readers of a certain age of the Hotel California. <laughs> you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave, as the song goes. Your typical horror story would have this place haunted by a vengeful ghost or populated by a cannibal family or something along those lines. The hospice, however, is typical Aikman in that you get the sense that our unsuspecting protagonist is in terrible peril without ever learning exactly what's wrong with the place. It's all stuff glimpsed out of the corner of the eye, like the manacles that chain the long-term residents to their places at the dining table. One of the things that's fascinating about Aikman, and one of the reasons I suspect that he will never ever gain the following that Lovecraft eventually did, or that Stephen King has, is that he doesn't invent worlds to share with you. He rather hides them from you and never drops more than hints as to what might be around the corner just out of view. Occasionally, you do get insight into the mechanism driving whatever supernatural force is at the center of the story, but that's totally the exception, not the rule. He makes some of the deftest use of dream logic you'll ever find in an old-fashioned horror tale. Though maybe old-fashioned isn't really the correct description, Aikman's stories feel like descendants of the exposition-heavy work of 
fellows like Oliver Onions or M.R. James, but somewhere in there some Shirley Jackson seems to have infiltrated into the mix with her relatively contemporary focus on the surreal and mysterious amid the everyday and ordinary, one ordinary day with peanuts. I couldn't say whether or not someone like Kelly Link considers Aikman an influence, but you can see groundwork for the dreamlike, but you can see groundwork for the dreamlike yet oddly mundane situations that Link creates laid in Aikman's off-kilter stories, which have passages that are like waking dreams or nightmares that often flow continuously with the more mundane details. Aikman's output was primarily short stories, 48 to be exact, released over the course of his lifetime, many of them seeing first publication in his own collections. He died in 1981 after a long but fairly low-key career. He did receive a World Fantasy Award in the 1970s for his excellent but quite uncharacteristic story, Pages from a Young Girl's Journal, an elegant and archetypal to an arc-t vampire story. After reading his work in The Dark Descent, I found a copy of one of his few collections to see a mass-market release in the United States, Cold Hand in Mine. I reread it a couple months ago as part of my Aikman binge. It's one of three collections of his work available for Kindle. The others are The Unsettled Dust and The Wine Dark Sea. Inspired by the Kindle fire that Anita got me for Christmas, I read all three. I have to say, Cold Hand in Mine still stands out as an excellent sample platter of what Aikman has to offer. The collection holds pages from a young girl's journal and the hospice, as well as The Swords, another story Hartwell chose to reprint, about a boy's very unfortunate first sexual experience. It's darkly comic, a tad sad, and truly nasty in a very understated way, as only, <laughs> as only unexpected necrophilia can be. Other strong works include The Same Dog, a wistful, elliptical short story that's probably the closest Aikman ever got to a werewolf yarn. A ghost story of sorts called Meeting Mr. Miller builds on the same techniques employed in The Hospice, wherein our narrator is an outsider looking in on a series of supernatural events without ever understanding what caused them. Many of Aikman's protagonists fall in the same boat, glancing off of a mysterious happening, rather than plunging into it. Those that do plunge into it, though, generally don't fare so well, though, curiously, the outcome often depends on one's gender. Aikman is a curious mix, as dead white male horror writers go. When his protagonist is a mild-mannered man, the villain of the piece rather frequently arrives in the form of an eldritch femme fatale. 
or at very least the love interest will prove to have a past haunted by problems outside the scope of what science understands. It's perhaps worth mentioning as well, as a warning, that while Aikman isn't a blatant xenophobe like Lovecraft was, he definitely commits his share of what the kids today call othering. Magic is often associated with those who have dark hair and dark skin, and there's an occasional whiff in his stories of a strange ambivalence toward the Second World War. It's hard to tell what it means exactly, though, because while he'll occasionally make a point of noting that a character is Jewish, said characters are usually portrayed sympathetically as are people of color within the scope of the othering I already described. A further contradiction. When Aikman chooses to write from the point of view of a woman, he often seems, to this middle-aged white dude at least, to be quite empathic and attuned to the unfair lot women can face in life. Nowhere is this more evident than in Growing Boys, a story in the wine-dark sea that doubles as a rare overt satire about a woman who knows that the sons she's raising are turning into monsters, and yet no one will listen to her or help her deal with them, especially not her grossly self-centered husband. His female protagonists also seem more likely than their male counterparts to survive direct encounters with the supernatural and to make the adjustments they have to make in their lives afterwards. From the wine-dark sea, I can cite The Inner Room and Into the Woods as examples. Pages from a young girl's journal also exhibits this trait to a degree, as our young lady embraces the darkness as something less constraining than the societal limits of the Romantic Age. The Wine Dark Sea, the collection, is at least the equal of Cold Hand in Mine, perhaps even a stronger set of stories. Something that's neat about Aikman that isn't always true with other short story writers I find, when I read a number of stories by an author in a row, I often notice how themes, styles, and mannerisms repeat, and sometimes how entire plots repeat themselves, and sometimes how the author, in fact, seems to be writing the same story over and over again. I can say about Aikman that after reading three books in a row of his work, his stories did not become a homogenized blur. They're quite distinct and have just enough variation in style to make them quite intriguing beyond their content. The title story of The Wine Dark Sea is an eroticized trek into relatively straightforward allegory, by Aikman's standards, in which a man visits an island shunned by nearby villagers and discovers witches and gods from an earlier age dwelling there. The second story in the collection, The Trains, is a brilliant bit of evolving, understated horror, and as it's one of Aikman's earliest works, it gives a sense of the immense talents he possessed from the get-go. You could sum it up using one of the most cliched horror scenarios that exists in our current 
horror lexicon, especially in movies, two young women traveling alone take shelter in a strange house and bad things happen. But trust me, you've never seen it done as poetically, as compellingly as this particular story is done with its sense of mysteries unfolding within mysteries. All the stories in the Windark Sea are strong. I especially want to highlight The Fetch, a superb example of horror inspired by folklore, with an ending about as terrifying as you're going to find anywhere. It reminds me in its way of The Ring, or The Grudge, believe it or not, and it would make a hell of a movie in its own right. The third collection available for Kindle, The Unsettled Dust, is weaker than the other two, I think, though the title piece is a fascinatingly original haunted house story, not frightening exactly, but weird as hell, in a good way. And the final story, called The Stains, is one of my personal favorites from this binge read. Anita, who is a horticulturist by training, particularly appreciated the use of lichens in what's essentially the tale of a man being slowly drawn to his doom by a modern-day siren. Rather than fantasy or horror, Aikman preferred to call his tales strange stories, and I think his label was certainly apropos. If you haven't checked out what this undeservedly obscure master was all about, you really should. So anyway, I've been caught up in projects galore, including the release of the final print edition of Mythic Delirium and the next electronic edition of Mythic Delirium in its new form, so I don't have any preview to offer at the moment as to what my next topic will be. I guess you'll find out when you hear from me next. And until that time, stay scared. Thank you, Mike. You know, you reminded me. I, I used to have a copy of David Hartwell's book, The Dark Descent. But apparently it's either slipped below the surface here in the nook or was loaned and left behind some time back. So I've reordered it. Confound you. Ah, well, it's a great book. Very well. Fiction. Everyone snuggled, chums by your side, warming beverage in hand. Hmm? Allow me a brief previously on reminder of where we left off last week in part one of the Wendigo. It is moose hunting season in the vast, deep wilderness of northern Canada. There are five people in our hunting party, Dr. Cathcart, who, as is the practice in the country, is called Doc, Doc's nephew, Mr. Simpson, a divinity student, their Indian cook, Punk, and their guides, Hank Davis and the French-Canadian Joseph Defago. Disappointed in the season's lack of moose, our group has split up. To cover more ground, Dr. Cathcart is gone with Hank and Simpson with Defago. But the rumor of a creature that wanders the wild where they are headed begins to stir in their minds. After canoeing across a lake, Defago takes off unexpectedly 
leaving Simpson behind. In the air is a strange scent, something Simpson can only define as an odor of lions. Calling for him, Simpson attempts to follow Defago, but the man is so swift, Simpson is unable to keep up. The strange tracks he leaves, however, reveal that Defago is chasing something, something with even stranger tracks. Here are the last few paragraphs before the end of chapter four of our story. Although the snow was not continuous, lying merely in shallow flurries over the more open spaces, he found no difficulty in following the tracks for the first few miles. They went straight as a ruled line, wherever the trees permitted. The stride soon began to increase in length, till it finally assumed proportions that seemed absolutely impossible for any ordinary animal to have made. Like huge flying leaps they became. But what perplexed him even more, making him feel his vision had gone utterly awry, was that Defago's stride increased in the same manner and finally covered the same incredible distances. It looked as if the great beast had lifted him with it and carried him across these astonishing intervals. The sight of these huge tracks running side by side, silent evidence of a dreadful journey in which terror or madness had urged impossible results, was profoundly moving. It shocked Simpson in the secret depths of his soul, the most horrible thing his eyes had ever looked upon. He began to follow them mechanically, absent-mindedly almost ever, peering over his shoulder to see if he, too, were being followed by something with a gigantic tread. And soon it came about that he no longer quite realized what it was they signified, these impressions left upon the snow, by something nameless and untamed, always accompanied by the footmarks of the little French Canadian, his guide, his comrade, the man who had shared his tent a few hours before, chatting, laughing, even singing by his side. Here now is the conclusion of Algernon Blackwood's The Wendigo. Five. For a man of his years and inexperience, only a canny Scot, perhaps grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even that measure of balance that his youth somehow or other did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise, two things he presently noticed, while forging pluckily ahead, must have sent him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent, instead of only making his hands close more tightly upon the rifle stock while his heart, trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer winging its way to heaven. Both tracks, he saw, had undergone a change, and this change, so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man, was in some undecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he first noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade, 
or the dry snow drifting like finely ground rice about the edges cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep plunging holes of the animal there now appeared a mysterious reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than of anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly, this indistinct fiery tinge that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when, wholly unable to explain or to credit it, he turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they too bore similar witness, he noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse— and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in the last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Imperceptibly the change had come about, yet unmistakably. It was hard to see where the change first began. The result, however, was beyond question. Smaller, neater, more cleanly modeled, they formed now an exact and careful duplicate of the larger tracks beside them. The feet that produced them had, therefore, also changed, and something in his mind reared up with loathing and with terror as he saw it. Simpson, for the first time, hesitated, then, ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead. The next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end. On all sides, for a hundred yards or more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there, big trees, all of them, spruce, cedar, hemlock. There was no underbrush. He stood looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again, and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now, apparently, left the ground and it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash about his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, completely unnerving him. He had been secretly dreading all the time that it would come, and come it did. Far overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinned and wailing, he heard the crying voice of Defago, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsurpassed. The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening, as it were, with his whole body, then staggered back against the nearest tree for support, disorganized hopelessly in mind and spirit. To him, in that moment, it seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known, so that his heart emptied itself of all feeling whatsoever, as by a sudden drought. Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire! Ran in far beseeching accents of indescribable appeal, this voice of anguish down the sky. Once it called, then silence through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to and fro, searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, and flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller. Behind the screen of memory and emotion with which experience veils events, he plunged, distracted and half-deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, terror in his eyes and heart and soul. For the panic of the wilderness had called to him in that far voice the power of untamed distance, the enticement of the desolation that destroys. 
He knew in that moment all the pains of someone hopelessly and irretrievably lost, suffering the lust and travail of a soul in the final loneliness. A vision of Defago eternally hunted, driven and pursued across a skyey vastness of those ancient forests, fled like a flame across the dark ruins of his thoughts. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself steadily for a moment and think. The cry was not repeated. His own hoarse calling brought no response. The inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems, for hours afterward, for it was late in the afternoon when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and return to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then he went with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears. With difficulty he found his rifle in the homeward trail the concentration necessary to follow the badly blazed trees and a bitter hunger that gnawed helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits, the temporary aberration he had suffered might have been prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually the ballast shifted back again, and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all that, the journey through the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible, and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective or covering merely, had now become menacing, challenging, and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentiment of a nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question, and traveling an unknown trail in the darkness equally impracticable, he set up the whole of that night, rifle in hand, before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life, but it was successfully accomplished, and with the very first signs of dawn he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence and to indicate where he left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way alone by the lake and forest might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is to know the passionate loneliness of soul that a man can feel when the wilderness holds him in the hollow of its illimitable hand and laughs. It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. He claims no skill, declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically and without thinking, and this, doubtless, is the truth. He relied upon the guiding of the unconscious mind, which is instinct. Perhaps, too, some sense of orientation known to animals and primitive men may have helped as well, for through all that tangled region he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where Defago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before, with the remark, Strack due west across the lake into the sun to find the camp. There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used his compass to the best of his ability embarking in the frail craft for at least twelve miles of his journey, with a sensation of immense relief that the forest was at last behind him, 
and fortunately the water was calm. He took his line across the center of the lake instead of coasting round the shores for another twenty miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back. The light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he might have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated on the sandy cove, and Hank, Punk, and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted and broken specimen of Scotch humanity over the rocks toward a dying fire. 6. The sudden entrance of his prosaic uncle into the world of wizardry and horror that had haunted him without interruption, now for two days and two nights, had the immediate effect of giving to the affair an entirely new aspect. The sound of that crisp, Hello, my boy, and what's up now? and the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand introduced another standard of judgment. A revulsion of feeling washed through him. He realized that he had let himself go rather badly. He even felt vaguely ashamed of himself, the native hard-headedness of his race reclaiming him. And this doubtless explains why he found it so hard to tell that group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at that a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must first have food and, above all, sleep. Dr. Cathcart observed the lad's condition more shrewdly than his patient knew, giving him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by this student of divinity, it appears that the account he gave to the astonished group omitted sundry vital and important details. He declares that, with his uncle's wholesome matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, he simply had not the courage to mention them. Thus, all the search party gathered, it would seem, was that Defago had suffered in the night an acute and inexplicable attack of mania, had imagined himself called by someone or something, and had plunged into the bush after it without food or rifle, where he must die a horrible and lingering death by cold and starvation unless he could be found and rescued in Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Time. In time, moreover, meant at once. In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness without divining that it was drawn out of him as a matter of fact by a very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how DeFago spoke vaguely of something he called a wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He had admitted the bewildering effect of that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent and acrid like the odor of lions, and by the time they were within an easy hour of Fifty Island Water, he had let slip the further fact, a foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition, as he felt afterwards, that he had heard the vanquished guide call for help. He omitted the singular phrases used, and he simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they measured a wholly incredible distance. It seemed a question nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty, what he should reveal and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partially dragged out of the tent. With the net result that Dr. Cathcart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind, influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and invited delusion. While praising his conduct, he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was by judicious praise, yet more foolish than he was by minimizing the value of the evidence. Like many another materialist, that is, he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge, because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence inadmissible. The spell of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind that is possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it has worked upon my own when I was your age. The animal that haunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have, sometimes, a very peculiar quality of sound. The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously a defect of vision in your own eyes produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them. But the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement. An excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and, let me add, wonderfully controlled by you under the circumstances. For the rest, I am bound to say, you have acted with a splendid courage, for the terror of feeling oneself lost in this wilderness is nothing short of awful, and, had I been in your place, 
I don't for a moment believe I would have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The only thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared his nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formulae, made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way I can describe it, he concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel, was the reply, that under the circumstances it did not seem to you even worse. The dry words Simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth. And so at last they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing, the remains of the fire, and the piece of paper pinned to a stake beside it, untouched. The cache, poorly contrived by inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered about the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. "'Well, fellers, he ain't here,' exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion. "'And that's as sartin as the coal supply down below.' but where he's got to by this time is about as uncertain as the trade in crowns at the other place. The presence of a divinity student was no barrier to his language at such a time, though for the reader's sake it may be severely edited. I propose, he added, that we start out at once and hunt for him like hell. The gloom of Defago's probable fate oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity the moment they saw the familiar sign of recent occupancy, especially the tent, with the bed of balsam branches still smoothed and flattened by the pressure of his body, seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely as if his world were somehow at stake, went about explaining particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys. His uncle's method of explaining, explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory helped, too, to put ice upon his emotions. And that's the direction he ran off in, he said to his two companions, pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the gray dawn. Straight down there he ran like a deer in between the birch and the hemlock. Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances. And it was about two miles down there in a straight line, continued the other, speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, that I followed the trail to the place where it stopped dead and where you heard him callin' and caught the stench and all the rest of that wicked entertainment, cried Hank, with a volubility that betrayed his keen distress, and where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions, added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, yet not so low that his nephew did not hear it. It was early in the afternoon, for they had traveled quickly, and there was still a good two hours of daylight left. Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search, but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blazed mark on the trees and, where possible, his footsteps. Meanwhile, the best thing he could do was to keep a good fire going and rest. But after something like three hours' search of the darkness already down, the two men returned to camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all signs, and though they had followed the blazed trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, they had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being, or, for that matter, of an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what best to do, though in reality there was nothing more they could do. They might stay and search for weeks without much chance of success. 
The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered around the fire for supper, a gloomy and despondent party. The facts indeed were sad enough, for DeFego had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth in all its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time, even in experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. DeFago, moreover, was predisposed to something of the sort, for he already had a touch of the melancholia in his blood, and his fiber was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the line, that was all. And he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased, and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked, indeed, the end had probably come. On the suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day from dawn to darkness to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them. They discussed their plan in great detail. All that men could do, they would do. And meanwhile, they talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating. For he admitted that a story ran all over this section of country to the effect that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of Fifty Island Water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason of DeFago's disinclination to hunt there. Hank doubtless felt that he had in a sense helped his old pal to death by over-persuading him, when an Indian goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed. It's always put that he's seen the Wendigo, and poor old DeFago was superstitious down to his very heels. And then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time. He mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only omitted the strange language used. But Tefego surely had already told you all these details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed. Whereupon Simpson again repeated the facts, Defago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story, and so far as he remembered, had never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course he was telling the truth, and Dr. Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into blaze the moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least sound in the night about them, a fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of snow from the branches overhead where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident, lower also in tone. Fear, to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp, and though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this, the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. 
Hank was the most honest of the group. He said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed, he didn't go farther than was necessary to get it. Seven. A wall of silence wrapped them in, for the snow, though not thick, was sufficient to deaden any noise, and the frost held things pretty tight. Besides, no sound but their voices and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard. Only from time to time, something soft as the flutter of a pine moth's wings went past them through the air. No one seemed anxious to go to bed. The hours slipped toward midnight. The legend is picturesque enough. Observed the doctor after one of the longer pauses, speaking to break it rather than because he had anything to say, for the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, which some natures hear to their own destruction. Think about it, Hank said presently, and there's no misunderstanding when you hear it. It calls you by name right enough. Another pause followed. Then Doctor Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject with a rush that made the others jump. The allegory is sufficient," he remarked, looking about him into the darkness. For the voice, they say, resembles all the minor sounds of the bush—wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victim hears that, he's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes. The feet, you see, for the lust of wandering; the eyes, for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes, and his feet burn. Doctor Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank to a hushed tone. The Wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet owing to the friction, apparently caused by its tremendous velocity, till they drop off, and new ones form exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement. But it was the pallor on Hank's face that fascinated him most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes, had he dared. It don't always keep to the ground, neither," came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, "for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set 'em all afire, and it'll take great thump and jump sometimes and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it, and then dropping 'em just as a fish hawk will drop a pickerel to kill it before eating." And its food, of all the muck in the whole bush, is moss. And he laughed a short, unnatural laugh. It's a moss eater, is the Wendigo. He added, looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. Moss eater, he repeated with a string of the most outlandish oaths he could invent. But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. What these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, dreaded more than anything else was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in an enemy's country, against anything, in fact, rather than allow their inmost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune. But these two, the scoffing analytical doctor. And the honest, dogged backwoodsman each sat trembling in the depths of his being. Thus the hours passed, and thus, with lowered voices and a kind of taut inner resistance of spirit, this little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack, and of a hostage. 
The fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became insupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones that no one seemed able to break, who first let loose all this pent-up emotion in very unexpected fashion. By springing suddenly to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night, he could not contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it carry even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted his rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. That's for DeFago, he said, looking down at the other two with a queer, defiant laugh. For it's my belief, the sandwiched oaths may be omitted, that my old partner's not far from us at this very minute. There was a vehemence and recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart's showed a sudden weakness, a loosening of all his faculties, as it were. Then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he, too, thought with deliberation born of habitual self-control, got upon his feet and faced the excited guide. For this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, and he meant to stop it in the bud. What might have happened in the next minute or two one may speculate about, yet never definitively know. For in the instant of profound silence that followed Hank's roaring voice, and as though in answer to it, something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead at terrific speed, something of necessity very large, for it displaced much air, while down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal. Oh, oh, the fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet on fire! My burning feet of fire. White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart uttered some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did so with an instinctive movement of blind terror toward the protection of the tent, then halting in the act as though frozen. Simpson, alone of the three, retained his presence of mind a little. His own horror was too deep to allow of any immediate reaction. He had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said almost calmly, That's exactly the cry I heard, the very words he used. Then, lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, Defago! Defago! Come down here to us! Come down! And before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or the other, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down and landing with a dreadful thud upon the frozen earth below. The crash and thunder of it was really terrific. "'That's him! So help me the good God!' came from Hank in a whispered cry half-choked, his hand going automatically toward the hunting knife in his belt. "'And he's coming! He's coming!' he added, with an irrational laugh of horror as the sounds of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness toward the circle of light." and while the steps with their stumbling motion moved nearer and nearer upon them, the three men stood around that fire, motionless and dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet did nothing. He too was hewn of stone, like stricken children they seemed. The picture was hideous, and meanwhile their owner still invisible. The footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real, this measured and pitiless approach. It was accursed. 8. 
Then at length the darkness, having thus laboriously conceived, brought forth a figure. It drew forward into the zone of uncertain light, where fire and shadows mingled, not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly. The same instant it started forward again with a spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires, and coming up closer to them, full into the glare of the fire. They perceived then that it was a man, and apparently that this man was Defego. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down in that moment over every face, and three pairs of eyes shone through it as they saw across the frontiers of normal vision into the unknown. Defego advanced, his tread faltering and uncertain. He made his way straight up to them as a group, first, then turned sharply and peered close into the face of Simpson. The sound of a voice issued from his lips. Here I am, Boss Simpson. I heard someone calling me. It was a faint, dried-up voice, made wheezy and breathless as by immense exertion. I'm having a regular hellfire kind of trip, I am and he laughed, thrusting his head forward into the other's face. But that laugh started the machinery of the group of waxwork figures with the wax-white skins. Hank immediately sprang forward with a stream of oaths so far-fetched that Simpson did not recognize them as English at all, but thought he had lapsed into Indian or some other lingo. He only realized that Hank's presence thrust thus between them was welcome, uncommonly welcome. Dr. Cathcart, though more calmly and leisurely, advanced behind him, heavily stumbling. Simpson seemed hazy as to what was actually said and done in the next few seconds, for the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage peering at such close quarters into his own utterly bewildered his senses at first. He merely stood still. He said nothing. He had not the trained will of the older men that forced them into action in defiance of all emotional stress. He watched them moving as behind a glass that half-destroyed their reality. It was dreamlike, perverted. Yet, through the torrent of Hank's meaningless phrases, he remembers hearing his uncle's tone of authority, hard and forced, saying several things about food and warmth, blankets, whiskey and the rest, and further, that whiffs of the penetrating unaccustomed odor, vile yet sweetly bewildering, assailed the nostrils during all that followed. It was no less a person than himself, however, less experienced and adroit than the others, though he was, who gave instinctive utterance to the sentence that brought a measure of relief into the ghastly situation by expressing the doubt and the thought in each one's heart. It is you, isn't it, DeFago? He asked under his breath, horror breaking his speech. And at once Cathcart burst out with a loud answer before the other had time to move his lips. Of course it is, of course it is. Only, can't you see, he's nearly dead with exhaustion, cold and terror. Isn't that enough to change a man beyond all recognition? It was said in order to convince himself as much as to convince the others. The overemphasis alone proved that. And continually, while he spoke and acted, he held a handkerchief to his nose. That odor pervaded the whole camp. For the defego who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot whiskey and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of sixty is like a daguerreotype of his early youth in the costume of another generation. Nothing really can describe that ghastly caricature, that parody, masquerading there in the firelight as defego. From the ruins of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares that the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about into wrong proportions, 
the skin loose and hanging, and though he had been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hill that change their expression as they swell and as they collapse amid a faint and wailing imitation of a voice. Both face and voice suggested some such abominable resemblance. But Cathcart, long afterwards, seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been in air so rarefied that, the weight of atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly asunder and become incoherent. It was Hank, though all distraught and shaking with a tearing volume of emotion he could neither handle nor understand, who brought things to a head without much ado. He went off to a little distance from the fire, apparently so that the light should not dazzle him too much, and, shading his eyes for a moment with both hands, shouted in a loud voice that held anger and affection dreadfully mingled, "'You ain't to Fago! You ain't to Fago at all! I don't give a damn, but that ain't you, my old pal of twenty years!' He glared upon the huddled figure as though he would destroy him with his eyes. "'And if it is, I'll swab the floor of hell with a wad of cotton wool on a toothpick!' So help me the good God, he added with a violent fling of horror and disgust. It was impossible to silence him. He stood there shouting like one possessed, horrible to see, horrible to hear, because it was the truth. He repeated himself in fifty different ways, each more outlandish than the last. The woods rang with echoes. At one time it looked as if he meant to fling himself upon the intruder, for his hand continually jerked toward the long hunting knife at his belt. But in the end he did nothing. The whole tempest completed itself very shortly with tears. Hank's voice suddenly broke, he collapsed on the ground, and Cathcart somehow or other persuaded him at last to go into the tent and lie quiet. The remainder of the affair, indeed, was witnessed by him from behind the canvas, his white and terrified face peeping through the crack of the tent door flap. Then Dr. Cathcart, closely followed by his nephew, who so far had kept his courage better than all of them, went up with a determined air and stood opposite the figure of Defago, huddled over the fire. He looked him squarely in the face and spoke. At first his voice was firm. Defago, tell us what happened. Just a little, so that we can know how best to help you, he asked in a tone of authority, almost of command. At that point it was command. At once afterwards, however, it changed in quality. For the figure turned up to him, a face so piteous, so terrible, and so little like humanity, that the doctor shrank back from him as from something spiritually unclean. Simpson, watching close behind him, says he got the impression of a mask that was on the verge of dropping off, and that underneath they would discover something black and diabolical, revealed in the utter nakedness. "'Out with it, man! Out with it!' Cathcart cried, terror running neck and neck with entreaty. "'None of us can stand this much longer!' It was the cry of instinct over reason. And then Defago, smiling whitely, answered in that thin and fading voice that already seemed passing over into a sound of quite another character. "'I seen the great Wendigo thing,' he whispered, sniffing the air about him like an animal. "'I've been with it, too.' Whether the poor devil would have said more, or whether Dr. Cathcart would have continued the impossible cross-examination cannot be known, for at that moment the voice of Hank was heard yelling at the top of his voice from behind the canvas that concealed all but his terrified eyes. Such a howling was never heard. His feet! Oh, God, his feet! Look at his great, changed feet! 
DeFago, shuffling where he sat, had moved in such a way that for the first time his legs were in full light and his feet were visible. Yet Simpson had no time himself to see properly what Hank had seen. And Hank had never seen fit to tell. That same instant, with a leap like that of a frightened tiger, Cathcart was upon him, bundling the folds of a blanket about his legs with such speed that the young student caught little more than a passing glimpse of something dark and oddly masked where moccasin feet ought to have been, and saw even that but with uncertain vision. Then, before the doctor had time to do more, or Simpson time to even think a question, much less ask it, DeFago was standing upright in front of them, balancing with pain and difficulty, and, upon his shapeless and twisted visage, an expression so dark and so malicious that it was, in the true sense, monstrous. "'Now you've seen it, too,' he wheezed. "'You've seen my fiery burning feet. And now, that is, unless you're keen to save me and prevent, it's about time for—' His piteous and beseeching voice was interrupted by a sound that was like a roar of wind coming across the lake. The trees overhead shook their tangled branches, the blazing fire bent its flames as before a blast, and something swept with a terrific rushing noise about the little camp and seemed to surround it entirely in a single moment of time. DeFago shook the clinging blankets from his body, turned toward the woods behind, and with the same stumbling motion that had brought him, was gone. Gone before anyone could move a muscle to prevent him, gone with an amazing blundering swiftness that left no time to act. The darkness positively swallowed him, and less than a dozen seconds later, above the roar of the swaying trees and the shout of the sudden wind, all three men, watching and listening with stricken hearts, heard a cry that seemed to drop down upon them from a great height of sky and distance. Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire! Then died away into untold space and silence. Dr. Cathcart, suddenly master of himself, and therefore of the others, was just able to seize Hank violently by the arm as he tried to dash headlong into the bush. "'But I want her know! You!' shrieked the guide. "'I want her see! That ain't him at all, but some devil that shunted into his place!' Somehow or other, he admits he never quite knew how he accomplished it. He managed to keep him in the tent and pacify him. The doctor apparently had reached the stage where reaction had set in and allowed his own innate force to conquer. Certainly he managed Hank admirably. It was his nephew, however, hitherto so wonderfully controlled, who gave him most cause for anxiety, for the cumulative strain had now produced a condition of lacrimose hysteria which made it necessary to isolate him upon a bed of boughs and blankets as far removed from Hank as was possible under the circumstances. And there he lay, as the watches of that haunted night passed over the lonely camp, crying startled sentences and fragments of sentences into the folds of his blanket. A quantity of gibberish about speed and height and fire mingled oddly with biblical memories of the classroom. People with broken faces all on fire are coming at a most awful, awful pace toward the camp. He would moan one minute, and the next would sit up and stare into the woods, intently listening and whisper, how terrible in the wilderness are, are the feet of them that... Until his uncle came across the change the direction of his thoughts and comfort him. The hysteria fortunately proved but temporary. Sleep cured him just as it cured Hank. Till the first signs of daylight came, soon after five o'clock, Dr. Cathcart kept his vigil. His face was the color of chalk, and there were strange flushes beneath the eyes. 
an appalling terror of the soul battled with his will all through those silent hours. These were some of the outer signs. At dawn he lit the fire himself, made breakfast, and woke the others, and by seven they were well on their way back to the home camp, three perplexed and afflicted men, but each in his own way having reduced his inner turmoil to a condition of more or less systematized order again. 9. They talked little, and then only of the most wholesome and common things, for their minds were charged with painful thoughts that clamored for explanation, though no one dared refer to them. Hank, being nearest to primitive conditions, was the first to find himself, for he was also less complex. In Dr. Cathcart, civilization championed his forces against an attack singular enough. To this day, perhaps he is not quite sure of certain things. Anyhow, he took longer to find himself. Simpson, the student of divinity, it was, who arranged his conclusions probably with the best, though not most scientific appearance of order. Out there, in the heart of unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive. Something that had survived somehow the advance of humanity had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature. He envisaged it rather as a glimpse into prehistoric ages, when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day he thinks of what he termed years later in a sermon, savage and formidable potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. With his uncle he never discussed the matter in detail, for the barrier between the two types of mind made it difficult. Only once, years later, something led them to the frontier of the subject, of a single detail of the subject, rather. Can't you even tell me what they were like, he asked, and the reply, though conceived in wisdom, was not encouraging. It is far better you should not try to know or to find out. Well, that odor persisted the nephew. What do you make of that? Dr. Cathcart looked at him with raised eyebrows. Odors, he replied, are not so easy as sounds and sights of telepathic communication. I make as such, or as little, probably, as you do yourself. He was not quite so glib as usual with his explanations. That was all. At the fall of day, cold, exhausted, famished, the party came to the end of the long portage and dragged themselves into a camp that at first glimpse seemed empty. Fire there was none, and no punk came forward to welcome them. The emotional capacity of all three was too overspent to recognize either surprise or annoyance. But the cry of spontaneous affection that burst from the lips of Frank as he rushed ahead of them toward the fireplace came probably as a warning that the end of the amazing affair was not quite yet and both Cathcart and his nephew confessed afterwards that when they saw him kneel down in his excitement and embrace something that reclined, gently moving beside the extinguished ashes, they felt in their very bones that this something would prove to be Defago, the true Defago, returned. And so indeed it was. It is soon told, exhausted to the point of emaciation, the French-Canadian, what was left of him, that is, fumbled along the ashes, trying to make a fire. His body crouched there, the weak fingers obeying feebly the instinctive habit of a lifetime with twigs and matches. 
but there was no longer any mind to direct the simple operation. The mind had fled beyond recall, and with it, too, had fled memory. Not only recent events, but all previous life was a blank. This time it was the real man, though incredibly and horribly shrunken. Ona's face was no expression of any kind whatever. Fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him, or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden. The something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. In some ways it was more terribly moving than anything they had yet seen. That idiot smile as he drew wads of coarse moss from his swollen cheeks and told them that he was a damn moss eater and continued vomiting of even the simplest foods. And worst of all, the piteous and childish voice of complaint in which he told them that his feet pained him, burn like fire, which was natural enough when Dr. Cathcart examined them and found that they were both dreadfully frozen. Beneath the eyes were faint indications of recent bleeding. The details of how he survived the prolonged exposure, of where he had been, or of how he covered the great distance from one camp to the other, including an immense detour of the lake on foot since he had no canoe, all this remains unknown. His memory has vanished completely. And before the end of the winter whose beginning witnessed this strange occurrence, DeFago, bereft of mind, memory, and soul, had gone with it. He lingered only a few weeks. And what Punk was able to contribute to the story throws no further light upon it. He was cleaning fish by the lakeshore about five o'clock in the evening, an hour, that is, before the search party returned, when he saw this shadow of the guide picking its way weakly into camp. In advance of him, he declares, came the faint whiff of a certain singular odor. That same instant old Punk started for home. He covered the entire journey of three days as only Indian blood could have covered it. The terror of a whole race drove him. He knew what it all meant. DeFago had seen the Wendigo. Fago had seen the Wendigo. Thank you, Algernon Blackwood. Thank you for having lived, for having written, and having left a legacy of chill horror behind. And thank you, Mike Boris, again, for a fine rendering of the Wendigo. Mike was born and raised in New Jersey, but lives now in the Midwest of the United States. He's a ceramic engineer and a professional narrator of e-learning courses. He's the father of four boys, one of whom, Jacob Boris, is another narrator here in the Nook and elsewhere. In addition to stopping by the Nook to read to us, Mike has also read tales on the Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, Escape Pod, and the Drabblecast. You can touch base with him at mikeborisaudio.com. Well, there it is. We have jointly shivered through another great classic tale here in the Nook. Next week, <laughs> well, next week something different. 
and I'm certain you'll want to be here for it. And maybe, maybe it'll be a bit warmer and you won't have to wrap yourselves so completely. But now, wrap up and be off with you. Leave your bowls and mugs in the sink for Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, to clean, and clean they will be for next week's gather. Now, be careful out there in the night, the dark, among the trees and by the lake, and if you smell something, something strange, something wild, something that is nothing but the scent of lions, well... You can either run for it, beat a flaming path homeward and into bed, or you can remind yourself that we're not all that far from the cat house at Lincoln Park Zoo, and it may well be lions you smell on the night breeze from there. Whichever you choose, may the thoughts of the night bring you pleasant dreams. Hmm... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.